There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. After the apocalypse, a pandemic survival story. Season 4, Episode 3. Purpose. It was a warm day, but it was cool in the shade. He sat in a grotto behind the campus infirmary. A light breeze swayed the hanging branches of a large weeping willow tree. The dancing greenery filtered the sunlight into splashes of illumination on the patio and long grass. It smelled like summer. Bill the dog lay on his back in the grass, in a patch of sun with his legs splayed, head to one side, tongue lolling, snoring softly. No cares in the world. The old man watched the movement of the willow from his chair in the dappled shade. The flecks of sunlight caused him to squint when the kaleidoscope sun broke through the shifting of the draped branches. This tree was probably a hundred years old. He vaguely remembered that they planted these in the old days in boggy places to soak up wetness. Willows were a mainstay in churchyards across the northeast. Brought from England by those dour Puritans, nostalgic for the melancholy trees casting deep shadows across lichenous old gravestones. This species was a fixture of old college campuses, too, probably because they were hard to kill and easy to maintain. This one had found its way here to a campus in Tennessee. The old man imagined this tree had seen plenty in her time. The never-ending flash of professors and undergraduates passing by on their way to class. The surreptitious rendezvous of co-eds with fraternity boys. The farewell kisses and longing looks of young men going off to war. The old tree had seen a lot. It had played its part, standing mute testament for generations. But what was its purpose now? To grow old and die here alone in the unkempt garden of a campus infirmary? He sensed, or rather, he imagined that he could hear its keening cry of loneliness and stretched out a hand to lay on its warm bark. A fellow traveler. I know how you feel, my friend, he said out loud and then paused. Was he embarrassed to be seen talking to a tree? No, he realized he was not. 
He realized with some satisfaction that he was long past caring what anyone else thought, and that made him feel free. It had been cooler this year than the many summers he remembered. Something about the apocalypse. Something about the abrupt cessation of millions of tons of pollution being exhaled into the environment by billions of humans who no longer walk this green earth. The earth abides. Or was it dying? The old man wondered if this was just a minor adjustment, a blip, or would it cascade into some sort of environmental catastrophe, some new ice age? Would the remaining survivors be forced to migrate south or even be killed off entirely by a precipitous freeze? Hadn't the first wave of hominins in Europe been eradicated in a flash ice age? The first group to travel out of Africa and spread into Europe over a million years ago, probably Homo heidelbergensis, purportedly died off due to the quick onset of an ice age. They were unable to adapt or scamper back south. The Neanderthals evolved later and were better suited to the colder climate. And it wasn't until a scant 150,000 years ago that Homo sapiens made the trip out of Africa. It was a mere sliver of time, somewhere around 20,000 years ago, that modern humans made it here to Tennessee. Even then, when those humans were right here where he sat and the tree danced, the great Wisconsin glacier reached its icy fingers down from what would become Canada to just a bit north of Tennessee, eating up half of Illinois and Ohio. Surely those first men had their sleep haunted by the creeping ice monster that scraped away organic life and topsoil as it moved. For all the old man or anyone knew, this new apocalypse could be the straw that broke the environmental camel's back. The old man wondered if either he or the old tree on which his hand was resting would be here to find out. The old man ruminated. That's all it was. Rumination. He couldn't stop thinking, especially now that he had been convalescing for almost a month. He was antsy. He was squirrely. He was going a little bit batty from the inactivity. This ennui was nothing a two- or three-hour run in the woods with a dog couldn't solve. But Giorgio wouldn't let him run. Wouldn't even let him out of the infirmary. He felt like a child or a doddering old person in assisted living, and he did not like that feeling at all. Soon enough, he thought, I'm either going to get out of this or go entirely crazy. But for now, all he could do is sit here and listen to his monkey mind make up stories about environmental catastrophe and talk to the god damn trees. He groused. What was his purpose now?
Paul had been found. The D.C. and the campus had been saved, or at least they had gotten out of harm's way for a while. What the hell was he supposed to do now? Even if he could get out of this chair and get back out there, what was he supposed to do now? Join those boomers at the trailer park they called the zoo? He could have had a hero's death if they just left him alone. He could have laid down the weight of this troubled world, laid it all down on the great pile of bones. But no, they had conspired to keep him here. He grumbled at the sleeping dog. You know, you could have left me, dog. I was ready to go. Bill cracked open a glassy eye and twitched his upside-down nose. Damn dog! Now what? Be a burden on the community? Go play bocce with the other old-timers and bitch about how things were so much better when they were young? Be a constant reminder of things that were, but would never be again? He wasn't sure he could do it. Without a reason to live, why bother consuming resources needed by the next generation, needed by the deserving survivors? The old man sighed. He fell back on a mantra he had often used in his life when his overactive brain got trapped in an obsessive-compulsive loop. Whatever happens, I'll handle it. One way or the other, he would handle it. He was shaken from his rumination by the sound of the sliding screen door being opened and turned to see Jen coming out, to sit with him, no doubt, to talk with him. Apparently, Paul had instructed her to play social worker for the old man until he recovered, the old man wasn't sure what the relationship was between his son and this young woman, but he had a guess. He and Janet had spent the last few months searching for Paul, only to find that his son had indeed survived, and also that Paul had become the leader of the survivors here. They called him the Kaiju, and he was working on some future-defining AI project. The technology was over the old man's head, but, but unlike the old man, Paul had the fire of passion and purpose in his eyes when he spoke of the future in this project, that kind of passion that could change the world and change the future. The old man felt like his fire was extinguished. But what about Jen and Paul? Jen wouldn't be the first girl to be swayed by the passion and purpose of a leader, especially a girl alone in the apocalypse, surrounded by piles of bones. The old man watched her walk towards him across the patio. He couldn't really decipher her ethnicity. She had straight black hair and almond eyes. He guessed she was Asian, but he caught himself. What made that his first thought? 
It really didn't matter. Especially now. He hoped surviving the apocalypse might cure humanity of its incessant racism. At least for a while. Maybe Paul's fancy machine could fix that, too. As she approached, she affected a smile, but her eyes were tired and puffy, like she had been crying. Maybe the apocalypse wasn't kind of star-crossed lovers, either, he thought. "'How's our patient today?' she said, pulling up a chair of her own that scraped across the patio stones. "'Morose, bored, and glad to see your smiling face, young lady.' The old man replied, How are you? I'm fine, she said in a way that made him sure she was not. He mentally gritted his teeth and reached into his old doctor's bag of tricks to apply the appropriate veneer of empathy. He may have uttered a silent curse on the world in general, and women specifically. Eventually, he said, with a reasonable display of concern and interest. What's the matter? Nothing, she said. I guess I'm just tired. I haven't been sleeping well. The old man knew that he had just opened Pandora's box. He really didn't need or want to play the role of confessor to this young woman. But what could he do? Another good reason not to be trapped in a chair. Bill had rolled to his belly and observed Jen with sleep-addled eyes. His tail flicked in a subdued greeting. Come on, he smiled. What's eating at you today? She was silent, pensive. He continued prodding. Aren't you supposed to be cheering me up? How can you do that when something's bugging you? Let's have it. He smiled again and reached out to put a hand on her wrist. She was warmer than the tree. She covered his hand with hers and raised her head, showing watery eyes. She gently took his hand, lifted it, and smiled. She pulled the hand towards her belly and placed it there. The old man felt something move and a look of surprise mixed with understanding came over his face. He overcame his reluctance and awkwardly pulled her head to his shoulder and held her there as she sobbed. Bill looked on, concerned and curious. Eventually, she pulled back and wiped her nose with her sleeve. I'm so sorry. I'm a mess. No! It's okay, the old man consoled her. I'm sure you're feeling overwhelmed, he continued. How long? About four months, as dear as I can figure. And have you talked to the doctor? Yes, I have. Dr. P says we're both healthy. She smiled sheepishly. So far, so good. Still... It's a big deal to be expecting these times. He considered what he was going to say next and how he was going to say it. What about the father? Jen smiled and squeezed his wrist. Yes, he's been very supportive. He's been great. 
She smiled again, a true smile this time, an impish smile, and said, And the grandfather knows now, too. The old man smiled now, his own true smile, and pulled Jen in for another long hug. Well, that's one way to shock an old guy out of his dark thoughts, he said. But no sooner had he said it than the old man's brain was chewing over a new problem. What the hell would happen to a newborn in the apocalypse? The virus, whatever it was, had killed 95% of the population. It had been indiscriminate. Old, young, and very young. It had appeared everywhere at the same time. It had been extremely virulent, and it had done its work quickly. His brain spun through the questions that, up until now, hadn't really bothered him. Those questions had been God's problem, not his. But now, his doctor's brain was chewing through those same questions, like a coyote chewing its paw off to get out of a trap. Where was the virus now? Was it inside all of them? Was there some sort of vector or agent? He and Paul had not been affected as far as he knew. Were they immune? Did they carry a genetic immunity or some shared epidemiological event in the past that primed them with immunity before the virus showed itself? Or was it something else like random chance? Those who had the virus and survived, like Jen, were they immune now? Could they get it again? Could it mutate and come back? More importantly, much more importantly, was immunity passed to the next generation? And if so, how and to what degree? Would this virus be like the medieval plagues and keep returning to reap the next generation every decade or so as immunity wore off? Had there been pregnant women who survived those first days? If so, what happened to their babies? Did they live? He squeezed his eyes tight to push the imagined, horrifying images of small skeletons from his mind's eye. Did this child, this grandchild have even a fighting chance of making it to term he had more questions than answers and that made him uneasy he did not like the feeling not at all as jen pulled back out of the hug visibly calmer it was the old man who affixed a false smile to his facade jen listen i know this is both scary and exciting don't worry. I'll work with Dr. P to do everything we can to make sure it's going to be okay. Everything will be okay, he continued with a kindness that surprised even himself. She smiled and rose to leave. Bill stood up and sniffed at the air. The sun was starting to drift towards the horizon, and in the shade it was getting cold. Strange weather for summertime in Tennessee, she said. Let me help you back inside. She looked at the afternoon sky. It looks like there might be another storm front rolling through the valley. She laughed. 
I miss being able to look at my phone to instantly get the local weather forecast. The old man leaned on her arm and rose out of his chair with a grunt. Look at it this way, he said. You're learning how to tell the weather the same way the ancients did, by looking at the sky and smelling the air. You're learning a lost art. I suppose, she said with a response that indicated it would be perfectly okay with her if some lost art stayed lost. In a more sincere and earnest tone, she said, Thank you for talking with me. I needed that. I appreciate you. Any time, the old man responded. Then he added casually, And if you see Paul, could you send him by to chat? No urgency. Just want to get caught up with everything I'm missing sitting around like a mushroom. Okay, I'll let him know, she said. She supported him, and they shuffled slowly back to his recovery room. Bill followed closely. She kept up a banter of chit-chat and pleasantries. But the old man didn't quite hear over the roar of his brain-making plans. He was in the dark and starting from a hole. He'd need data. He'd need a lab if they had one. He'd need some assistance, and he'd ask these government people if they knew anything. He felt a new fire kindling. Suddenly, his work in the apocalypse was a matter of life and death. Not his life and death. Before, it had been about him. It had been easy to be casual with his own life. But now, he had other lives to save. And there was one particular life that was top of mind. Bill the dog trotted through the infirmary room door, nails clicking on the tile. The old man settled himself into an upholstered chair that Paul had brought and positioned in a corner. An artifact from some dead tenured professor's office, no doubt. He reached for his reading glasses and a large book about epidemiology that lay on the small glass table. The dog ambled over and laid his big head in the old man's lap, big brown eyes peering up guilelessly, tail wagging. The old man tucked the book between his thigh and the upholstered arm of the chair. He pulled the dog's head in for a long hug. After a few long seconds of this embrace, the old man scratched the loose folds of skin under the big dog's chin and said, Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, my survivor friends. Here we are. We have arrived at Season 4, Episode 3. For you folks who are struggling with the unique temporal distortion of podcasting, it is the end of summer, 2023. How are you doing? Up here in New England, we would typically be crawling like dry, sun-baked lizards, all burnt up and crispy from the lack of moisture into the end of summer. But not this year. It's been the rainiest summer in history, I think. And it's been steadily pouring rain all summer long. Good for weeds, good for the mushrooms, good for the mosquitoes. My wife said it's like living in Seattle. As much as we like to complain about the exigencies of the weather, it really doesn't affect me or my life that much. I still get out with the dog. We don't melt. Ollie hates the rain. I'll put a picture of wet Ollie in here. Like all Border Collies, Ollie is neurotic about certain things, and a distaste for being wet is on the top of his list of foibles. As I mentioned last time, I think you can get these outro comments, these blog posts, emailed to you automagically if you go to oldmanapocalypse.com slash blog and subscribe. I'll add you to the list somewhere near the public published date of the episode. You'll get them in your inbox. I need to be careful with the timing because I don't want to confuse or spoil your listening experience. The why you care is that you get the links and the pictures of what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about here in case you want to follow up on something. Because I know when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm typically either out on a run or I'm driving, so when I hear something that I want to follow up on, it's hard because I have to remember it and then I have to go and hunt it down. So today, my long-suffering apocalyptic friends, we will discourse on the importance of broader themes in science fiction. <laughs> because as we progress through Season 4, you may start to see some broader storylines and themes emerge, and let me tell you why. The first three seasons that I'm assuming you've already listened to, those are very character-driven, uh, very action-driven, and I want to keep that in season four, but also up the stakes by including larger themes. Why would you do this, Chris, you ask? Well, as you know, by now, I'm a big fan of the golden age of science fiction, and, and whether I like it or not, I'm a product of that environment, right? That environment that my brain was pickled in, part of it at least, is from those classic science fiction stories. After the Apocalypse is an exaltation of all those great and interesting science fiction books that I have consumed in my life. And these books had a big impact on me and the way I think and my storytelling. And the good stories, the really great stories, 
are the ones that move beyond character and action and into bigger questions about the meaning of life, the purpose of humanity, and other big what-ifs. Because, as we have talked about, science fiction is the perfect sandbox, the perfect vehicle for asking big questions. You can do that in science fiction and not get in trouble. That's the power. It's safe. It's a fun arena to play in. So give us an example, you may ask. Okay, how about Asimov's Foundation series, right? What's the big question here? The big question he's exploring is, can the future be predicted and directed by scientific intervention? And what would a scientifically designed future look like? And what would the impact of that scientific intervention have on society? And what could go wrong? So those are kind of big questions, right? And the context of when he was writing that story in the 50s and the 60s, society had great faith in science, right? We had just split the atom. They had just found wonderful drugs and built amazing machines and electronics. And it seemed like science was the answer to everything. And so Asimov in Foundation sort of, and a lot of these guys extended that premise of science being able to solve everything, he extended it to a galactic empire. Interesting take. Or you can pick up any Heinlein book. I know I'm always talking about Heinlein. Uh, they're all treatments of what-ifs around human society. And I'll call out specifically, let's say, the Methuselah books, like Time Enough for Love, where the Lazarus Lung character, he answers all those questions about what would life be like if we could live forever? How would that change the way we look at things? Would it be for the better or for the worse? And Heinlein, for better or worse, he undressed a lot of these things, these themes, sex, love, religion in his stories. And his future was one of uh, a viewpoint of libertarian males who could use science and their keen wits to solve any problem. But great science fiction, even great fiction itself goes deep into these fundamental questions of humanity. And I don't think the intent is to answer those questions. I think the intent is to plant those seeds of the question and the possible outcomes in the minds of the readers to make the readers think, right? To make the readers think about these bigger questions. And in that way, they had an outsized impact on forming the thinking and questioning and hope and cynicism and joy of generations of readers. So I'm going to try and layer in some bigger themes in season four is sort of the, the net net, the summary. Like I said before, I think you guys are smart, or at least I'm going to assume you're smart. <laughs> I can broach these larger themes and you'll get it and you'll see it. You'll appreciate it, hopefully. Do I think my paltry scribbles could be put on the same shelf with the masters of the science fiction genre? No, but I do know that they would want me to try. They'd want us all to try. As my friend Dave, the race director for the Boston Marathon, always says to me, my game, my rules. <laughs> As rational humans and independent podcast people, we get to do what we want, right? We're serving ourselves. And maybe there's a lesson here for you creatives, which is don't just follow the furrow in front of you like a dumb mule pulling a cart, right? Don't settle for the proven formulas 
or uh, what people are asking for. You know, don't make it like a Hollywood remake. <laughs> Just trying to make everybody happy and make money. Try some things that have some risk to them. Try some things that could gasp, fail, because that's where the good stuff is. This does add complexity to the creative process. It's easy to describe a guy being attacked and chased by wild animals, but it's harder to make people feel the urgency of choices that impact the whole universe. And even though the stakes are much higher, they feel less urgent emotionally because they're less personal. So the challenge, the art, is to make those bigger themes personal. And I think that's what the best writers do. All right, enough of that. Sorry, went a little deep there. What is Chris reading? Well, I am reading, or more like it, sort of studying, a nonfiction ebook called Writing Unblocked. Here's the backstory. Putting together episodes two and three, I was having some trouble getting pen to paper. I had lots of ideas, but I was having trouble pushing them through that filter of my brain out onto the paper. And in the biz, they might have called this writer's block. It's quite a debilitating feeling when you have all the ideas. You have all the ideas, but you can't get them to take the form that you want in the way you want. And as is usually the case, inspiration came to me out on a run with Ollie. So I heard, I was listening to a podcast, right? And I heard this great interview on the successful screenwriters podcast with Jeff Calhoun. It's a good podcast, by the way. Jeff, he keeps the interview short and tight, talks about writing. And he interviewed me last year, so you know it's top notch. Smiley face. This particular interview was with Laura Cayouette, and she's an American actress and author. She was Leonardo DiCaprio's Southern Belle wife in The Django Unchained. She hangs out with Quentin Tarantino. She was pitching this ebook in the interview. And duly inspired, I procured it when I got home from my run. The full title is Writing Unblocked, How I Went from Writing One Book in 20 Years to five books in four years. And tying this back to why you should sign up for those emails, it wasn't easy to find this book. There are, and this should surprise no one, a bazillion books on writer's block. This book that I was looking for is self-published. It's a bit of an instructional book, basically a PDF you download from her website. It was hard to find. And to be honest, I felt a little bit hornswoggled be exchanging my hard-earned capital for what was essentially an actor's white paper on writing. Hornswoggled, by the way, is an American jocular word that means to be taken advantage of. Presumably, it is a fun portmanteau of horns and waggle that was invented when a steer shakes his head to avoid a lasso. And it's just plain fun to say, hornswoggled. The book is a how-to book, obviously. It's her methodology for writing, the methodology she uses. So not just novels, but screenplays and anything else. And like I said, I felt a bit shortchanged. I supposed I was looking for something a bit more academic and beefier. But here's the thing with how-to methodologies. They all work. Every single one will work if you follow the steps and do the work, which most people don't. 
And the why you care, the teaching moment here is because you can spend your whole life looking for the perfect methodology or magic silver bullet or the perfect process, and you'll never find it. But if you choose one, anyone, doesn't matter, randomly pick it, cover your eyes, throw a dart. If you pick it, choose it, and commit to it and are consistent with it, at the very least, you'll learn something and have some form of success. I'm sorry for being so preachy today. Her methodology, uh, Laura's methodology, is to write all your ideas one at a time onto index cards, paper index cards, and then color code the cards. Then you build them into a timeline, you stack them up, you have chapters, you have books, voila, you have your book. So I spent a couple of mornings writing all the stuff I had in my head, themes, scenes, dialogue, ideas, onto index cards, and guess what? It really helped me get my head around turning them into these episodes. This episode here is a stack of cards, guys. I already had the scenes and the dialogue in my head, but this helped me get it out. And the lesson here, I guess, is that in my experience, if you're hitting a wall, there's some things you can do, and it always helps to try something new or revert to something old. Whatever it is, break your routine. Don't do the same thing. Do something different. And it's important that it has a process to it. If you focus on the process, then the output will come, right? If you have a process, you can stop being distracted by the noise, stop worrying about the results, and just work on the process, and everything else takes care of itself. So in other words, just do it. Uh, so that's it for this week. I had not intended to go on for so long, but once you start writing, strange things happen. If you would like to support After the Apocalypse, there are many ways you can rate and review. You can subscribe. You can give us money. We like money. I will include all those links in the post. Keep your feet dry. Don't get hornswoggled. And keep surviving. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.